Hello, I'm Damien Venuto. It's July 28th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The isolated religious community of Gloriavale has gripped the nation for years. The church's ongoing attempts to project an image of wholesome Christianity have been tarnished many times. Gloriavale has the original sin of its founder, Neville Cooper, who dubbed himself Hopeful Christian, being a convicted sexual abuser, and has stayed in the news due to stories of workplace exploitation and physical and sexual abuse of minors. Today, I'm joined by Fergus Grady, the co-director of the new documentary Gloriavale, premiering in the New Zealand International Film Festival, and Liz Gregory from the Gloriavale Leavers Trust to discuss why, despite all the scrutiny, this troubled community still gets to play by its own rules. Fergus, your new documentary coincides with Gloria Vale recently making the news for an employment court ruling focused on child labour. What happened in this ruling and what did it feel like for you watching all this play out in the media? I guess the employment ruling came out, or at least it was a reserve judgment, right at the end of the production of the film. And even though we were in and amongst the legal team, you know, working for the plaintiffs in the case, it was a huge groundbreaking decision. And it's opened the doors for a lot of new legal action. I'm I'm sure Liz can talk more to that new legal action that's going to take place later this year. Yeah, Liz, do you want to give us a rundown of what's coming and how this might impact the community? There are various legal avenues being worked through at the moment, and some of them are suppressed, and so there are limitations on what can be said about them. The most obvious one coming up is the Girls Employment Court case. So that begins at the end of August, runs through a good three weeks in September. It's similar to the boys' case, but there are differences there. So again, looking for was there forced labour, were they volunteers or employees? I suspect that will get larger over time, even with government agencies, you've really got to start looking at all the adults at Gloria Vale, not just the young people who are working there without employment contracts and are unaware of what's happening with finances. Now, it's my understanding that Westland, the dairy company, is also involved in some legal action with the community. Could you run us through what's going on there? Yes, so Westland was under pressure from other um, groups that it interacts with to take a look at its relationship with Gloria Vale. It made the decision it would stop picking up the milk Gloravale said, you don't have the right to end our contract. And so the court hearing was Monday this week and the judges reserved her decision. Fergus, in your film, human rights investigator Steve Patterson describes the experience of members of Gloriaville as slavery. Probably two years ago, I was working in a law firm in Christchurch and I read the transcripts of an interview with John Reedy. And I remember looking at him going, This is a slavery case. This is about people who don't have any freedom. Would you describe that as a fair characterisation, having spoken to so many members of the community over the last 18 months? Yeah, I mean, Steve's obviously trained as a lawyer and and specialises in human rights and has done a number of case studies on slavery. So he's the best person to talk to that. In a number of our interviews, a lot of the subjects talk to or felt like being used as a slave, and that, and that comes across in the film. I mean, there are 600 people inside. It's a factory of some sorts, and I guess ultimately everyone's just seeking fair trade and fair use and fair compensation. Now, one family that features prominently in the documentary is the Reedy family. What's their story? Why were they the ones that you decided to focus on for the documentary? Meeting John was a really 
light bulb moment for me. I mean, this guy who is a family man had so much anger, but yet so much commitment to his family. And I felt like there was a redemption story there as soon as I met him. And he was fighting to get his family out of the community. I've heard rumors that they're prepared to fight it to the death, that they're putting aside 100,000 a month for lawyers. You know, they've wound up their war machine. So if that rumor's true, there's 100,000 a month being put aside to keep those people slaves. If they offered you 100,000 to go quiet. I wouldn't even blink at 10 million. If they offered me 10 million to go away, I'd go, you're joking. I'd be selling out 600 people. And once we met John, we met his sister Virginia, who's introduced in the film, having left the community first. And then once we sort of built those kind of stories, we wanted to add a third story, which is Sharon, which is their mother who still lives in the communities. I've given birth to 13 children, yeah. And how many grandkids do you have now? Around 60. I don't remember them all. I have to stop and think now. What is the name of that child? (laughs) So Sharon um, is what I would describe as sort of a a refugee living inside Gloryvale. She's obviously butted heads with the leadership and there's been a number of conflicts that have resulted in her having meals withheld From what I understand, speaking to her recently, she's been able to have access to the community garden, so she is able to source food for herself and her husband. But ultimately, she's ostracized from the community group. And that ostracization actually reaches out to her living conditions, which are pretty, I would say, below the the poverty line type set up with her living above an aircraft hangar, which was a former commercial business of Gloria Vale's. So they're living in cold, damp, dark conditions. She's a strong woman. She's fighting for what she believes in. But unfortunately, she's having to live in quite squalid and, and terrible conditions. And, and her day-to-day would be try and be helpful, do her part for the community, as well as try and see her 30-odd grandchildren and six children that still live in the community. Fergus, in the film, Sharon Reddy tells how founder Hopeful Christian sold an idealized life to people who were desperate. Were early members really not told that they would lose everything and that all their property would essentially become part of the Gloryville community? I believe that was the case. I know that Sharon was quite vulnerable at the time, having entered the community without both parents. Her father tragically passed away. So, you know, I I would say that Neville Cooper, who, who renamed himself Hopeful Christian, had targeted vulnerable people to recruit them into the community. And if those people did have any assets, then they would have to relinquish those assets as soon as they entered. Yeah, Sharon was actually only a young child when she entered. So she entered the community with her mum and a large number of siblings. So the father had passed away and Hopeful had connected with the family prior to the father passing away. So after he died a year later, Hopeful found out about it went back to the North Island, said, why don't you come down? We could look after you. And on goes the story. So Sharon is literally a child at the time. And then her mum and her siblings leave. And she's there by now married in her late teens. And she's stuck there. Everyone from her family has gone. She's the remaining member of Gloravale. She goes on to marry, has all these children. And here she is at her age fighting for justice, looking back on her life, reflecting with new eyes, 
about what really happened at the beginning of that. And it's definitely that part about vulnerable people who were in need. And that's not all of the community members. They wouldn't all say that was them, but there seemed to be a significant number that that applies to. Every child, as they grow older, they look back on the decisions that their parents made, and they maybe question some of those decisions. But here you have children that are growing up in a community that's quite different from any, anything that we've experienced, and they're being confronted with the fact that they've been put into circumstances that are well beyond their choosing. How did you feel telling that story? Yeah, well, that second and third generation that live inside Quarryvale, obviously were born either there or the original Springbank community. They don't have a choice, and it's very difficult to leave, so they're in a tricky bind I guess John and Virginia are really strong, outspoken people, and that strength comes through in their in their interviews. For Sharon Reddy, her um, involvement in the film personally is she wants to expose the evil, but it's more than that. She actually wants a story of hope and of faith. And for her, she wants to use the film as an ability to express that she still has a, a Christian faith and that she is showing love and care to those who have actually harmed her and her family and that she is going to remain because she has children she still loves there. So for Sharon, there's great reasons for her to want to get involved in this film. One thing that was quite concerning in the film was the way that Sharon already describes the way in which Hopeful Christian was managing and filming her relationship with her husband to a degree that she even felt uncomfortable. He made a film of my courtship and then he made a film of my wedding, and he wanted to make a film of me, you know, on the bed with my husband, and I'm, oh, I just couldn't understand. A hopeful Christian was a sex offender. He died in 2018, but does his influence still permeate through that community? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the things he was convicted of were just a drop in the bucket, really, of things he could have been convicted of. And what occurred then is that others in the community saw that these sorts of things were going unchecked and the victim shaming and all of the things that silenced women and the teaching on how women should be inside a marriage. He set up a community where it was going to be open slather for anyone with any tendencies towards sexual abuse. They knew they would be protected. And yes, it's had an absolutely devastating effect on the community. How does the church leader res- leadership respond to people who don't toe the line within the Gloryville community? It's always been, you're out. So you pop your head up, you're gone. However, they're struggling with that now. They're under so much scrutiny. They've made so many promises that actually they're a bit bound now. So people who they would like to throw out off the property, they're finding they can't afford to. It will make the media. It won't look too good for the agencies. So they're working on other ways. They're excommunicating them from the church but allowing them to stay on the property. But they're putting restrictions on them. You can't come to mealtimes, you can't join an event, you can't wear our clothes. Fergus, there's archive footage in your film that's quite disturbing. It shows Virginia Courage teaching her children misogynistic songs and rhymes. Sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Sit down, you're rocking the And she tells of occasions where she received pushback from leaders who said that sometimes abuse is a child's fault. Virginia was told she was anti-community for suggesting families should be allowed their own homes to help minimise abuse. 
Could Gloria Bell be accused of having more focus on prioritizing the community over the safety of individual members? And is, is there maybe a bit of gaslighting involved in all of this? Yeah, I mean, Virginia talks to her experience probably in the 90s where dorm rooms didn't have doors and locks. So I guess anyone could walk in and out of your room depending on what time of the day it was and you know whether your children were in bed. Virginia's experience herself as a sexual abuse survivor is a strong, powerful tale. And I think you know she wanted to bring about change and her family members who had also been sexual abuse victims, she wants to do something about that. So that clip that you talked to is quite revealing of what people are maybe brainwashed or, or fed inside Gloryvale and how much of a, a male-driven patriarchal society Gloryvale is. Fergus, from a storytelling perspective, we have seen an evolution in the way Gloryvale stories are told. Around 2018, TVNZ aired a series of documentaries that painted quite a quirky picture of the community. Why do you think there has been the shift where people are more open to confront the darker side of Gloryville. I think what was interesting for us is that as filmmakers, there's so many rich stories and dark truths that hadn't been uncovered. And following Liz and Steve, who invited us into the world of these levers, finding out the truth was the most important thing for us. I've watched a little bit of the TVNZ show, and to me, that doesn't feel anything like what happens on the daily basis inside Gloryville, even the romantic notion of wanting to get married for for strong faith reasons, that doesn't ring true from what I've been, you know, talking to the leavers about. So we wanted to really tell the truth and the documentary is purely observational and we're flies on the wall watching things unfold. Looking at the stories that you've told, do you think that there is perhaps an aspect that the government has taken too much of a hands-off approach with the wrongdoing that's happening within that community that they should become more involved? It's so cross-agency, it's so complex with different industries involved that the government hasn't really been able to work with each other and with the other agencies that need to really make change and either a royal commission or a specific commission into Gloryvale because I guess it, it may be seen as an attack on religious freedom. So it is super complex. Liz, just turning the conversation to you, Gloryville is in many ways about the interpretation of Christianity and what that should represent in a society. Do you think that the version of Christianity that they imagine um, is salvageable in a modern society? Or do you think it doesn't really create a safe place for people to live? I think Gloryville itself just doesn't create a safe space. I think you've seen various versions of Christian communities through the years, and some do manage a degree of healthy living. It's possible. But the question is, is it possible for Gloryville? And I would say with the three generations of ideology, a lot of what we see is twisted Christianity, spiritual abuse. And so um, it's very difficult to salvage that. Besides the great and obvious, you know, and I'm a person of faith that, you know, we believe God is all-powerful and has the ability to perform a great miracle. However, the reality of the situation is it's highly unlikely that they are going to be able to make the changes that are required because of their deeply held beliefs. The end of it. Yeah, they are a Christian communist society and the communism system is failing in there. I can't see how it's ever going to be a safe place. There are still plans for a human rights case against Gloria Vale. What do you think that that could achieve? I think 
at the heart of the issue is human rights. And Gloravel scoffs at that. We don't have human rights. We only have rights that God gives us. So they don't want to believe the concept that actually, you know, we are created beings with an entitlement to, you know, have an identity and some freedom. For them, they'll just flick that one away, brush it off as being an attack on Christianity, an attack on their life. But actually, the reality is there are laws, human rights do exist in this country. It's to safeguard people protect them. And so I think the human rights angle is incredibly important. And not only for Gloria Vale, they're not the only group in our country who have issues around abuses and human rights and the use of religion and controlling people. I think that may be one of the reasons the government has been a little bit nervous about getting into this battle, um, because they know there are other groups that they may need to take a look at. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.